Welcome to episode two of Forever White Belt. I am Adolfo Ferranda. In this episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Steve Kwan, co-host of my favorite BJJ podcast, BJJ Mental Models. Steve is a black belt under Don Whitefield from West Coast Martial Arts, and he teaches and trains at Ascension Martial Arts in British Columbia, Canada. I'm a huge fan of his and his brother's podcast, BJJ Mental Models, where they discuss conceptual jujitsu in a highly effective technical and humor-filled way. Some of the funnier moments for me were their discussions on taint sweeps, Steve's jumping to turtle, and constant cat interruptions during recording. His brother and co-host, Matt Kwan, is an academy owner, competitor, and black belt under Rob Bernacki, an author of Modern Jiu-Jitsu, an instructional on grapple arts. As you will hear, Steve has the gift of being a highly effective communicator and speaker. I honestly think you could put a mic in front of him, pick a topic, and you'd probably have a hit podcast or radio show. I also think the majority of BJJ hobbyists will identify, and they do identify with him, because he is exactly that, a hobbyist, a full-time, working, regular guy with a family and obligations, not some super athlete who spends all of his waking hours engrossed in BJJ. And it is that particular lens that will appeal to so many of you, because he has very interesting insights in a vast array of topics, such as how he got his black belt, the logistics of starting and running a growing popular jujitsu podcast, life under COVID, and what makes the BC Canadian jiu-jitsu community so special. That being said, we are all still waiting with bated breath for his turtle instructional. And with that, I give you Steve Kwan. Welcome to Forever White Belt. I am Adolfo Ferranda with a very special guest today, Steve Riley Kwan. So Steve is a black belt under Don Whitefield from West Coast Martial Arts. He teaches and trains at Ascension Martial Arts in British Columbia, Canada. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. Good to finally chat in person. And just so everyone knows, also, Steve is the co-host of my favorite Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu podcast, BJJ Mental Models. And I'm not saying that just because you're on the show here, Steve. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. You guys really are. So, Steve, I'm working with a United States public education here. So can you explain to me where Port Coquitlam is? Port Coquitlam is a like smallish city, basically in the greater Vancouver area. So when you when you come up here, there's a whole bunch of little cities around the area. Basically, yeah. when someone talks about like Port Coquitlam, it's a little offshoot city that's right next to Vancouver. So if people get confused, a lot of the time we just say, we're in Vancouver. It's easier to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, up here, there's a pretty big jujitsu scene up in the Vancouver, BC area. I've been training for uh, 12 years now. Um, both my brother and I have been, we started roughly around the same time. We're both black belts, actually from different schools. And we both have two very different walks of life. I mean, my brother trains, uh, has a gym full time. He competes professionally, whereas I'm just a lazy hobbyist. So we kind of have two different training styles, two different lifestyles when it comes to jujitsu. But we have very similar learning approaches, which is how we kind of got into the podcast. We were talking about the stuff and the concepts that we use to try to maximize our training time. And over the years, as we kind of put together this framework, we eventually decided, you know what, we should probably record this. (laughs) So we did. And that was how the podcast started. And then over time, that's grown. And now BJJ Mental Models is more than just a podcast, although that's what we're most known for. It's kind of like a whole conceptual framework. And the podcast is just kind of like the, the tip of the iceberg for most people who experience what we talk about. 
One thing I want to mention too, Steve, is that you're a bit of a ghost online. Besides your LinkedIn profile, uh, you you are actually you're an actor in a 1984 film called Ninja, Ninja Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt. <laughs> according to IMDb. And that's about it, brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I am well aware. Ninja Thunderbolt, that guy's the bane of my existence. I don't know who he is, but for the longest time, when you Google <laughs> Steve Kwan, like the only thing you would That's see it. is this actor. And he only apparently ever made one movie and that was Ninja Thunderbolt. There is also apparently some like Korean mall singer who just like goes to malls and sings pop songs and records really? himself and puts it on YouTube. Yeah, and also named Steve Kwan. And these guys are the bane of my existence. So oh, um, just do primarily for professional reasons. I always kept a, a somewhat low profile on the internet. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of like a white collar guy and I don't want weird stuff to come up when people are Googling me. Yeah, but over the years we decided, you know, we kind of put together a more public profile. So now when you Google me, you'll find a bunch of stuff to do with BJJ Mental Models. But yes, that that Ninja Thunderbolt, Ninja Thunderbolt guy really <laughs> is like, his SEO is on point when it comes to my Oh name. man. One other thing too, one of the reasons that I was really excited to have you on is because usually uh, these type of uh, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu shows, podcasts, whatever you want to call them, have these nothing but like sort of hardcore competitors. And what I was really eager to talk to was someone like yourself, because you and your brother are such a perfect pair because he's like this, you know, he owns a school, he's a competitor, and you're a black belt as well. But you're like, you're like me, you're like us, the regular people, the regular guy, you know, a working stiff who has kids, you know, has a family and has responsibilities outside of jiu-jitsu. But somehow you accomplish getting a black belt and now you're in this podcasting realm so can, can you expand on that yeah absolutely so i mean my backstory is when i when i started training that would have been about 12 years ago i'd always wanted to do a martial art didn't know anything about it i would always thought it would be fun but i kind of put it off for a long time and then one day i decided you know what i'm, I'm gonna do this but what are all of these martial arts? I had like no idea. I had no, I didn't know how like Taekwondo would be different from karate or anything. So after doing a bit of Googling, I mean, like most people, I think who got into jujitsu, I stumbled upon this little thing called the UFC, which of course I'd heard of, but I'd never had any interest in. And I did a bit of research and I found out that there's this weird like pajama hugging martial art that apparently is just totally awesome and it works really really great and so i kind of got immersed into like the lore of hoist gracie and everything he did and the the story and the narrative of brazilian jiu-jitsu really spoke to me like i've never been a big sports guy i mean i've always been a computer nerd my whole life that's the kind of stuff i love to do um i'm not big into you know like sports or athletics or anything but i when it came to jiu-jitsu the thing i loved about it was that it was a martial art that was proven to work. And, you know, as of around the 90s and the 2000s, it really became clear which of these martial arts are legit and which ones are not as effective as advertised, right? And Brazilian jiu-jitsu over time had been proven to work. But there's a few other things about it that I really liked. One was the ultimate David and Goliath story, right? Of like the little guy can go and defeat the stronger guy. And more importantly, could do that without getting hurt. I mean, I heard, I think, Henner Gracie talk about how Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is really the only true self-defense martial art. Many other martial arts are more self-offense, for lack of a better term. Like, if you're using boxing or kickboxing or Muay Thai, can you defend yourself with it? Absolutely. Probably going to put the other guy in the hospital, but you can do it. Whereas the thing about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is if you're good at it, you can totally disable someone and defeat someone without hurting them and without really breaking a sweat. And that philosophy of 
nonviolent combat really spoke to me as someone who wanted that out of martial arts. I don't want to be the kind of guy who's going into the gym and killing people. So as I learned jujitsu over the years, I got more and more into kind of the culture of how it works, the concepts of using things like leverage or strength, uh, and just this idea of fighting efficiently and even being able to defend yourself from the inevitable bad positions that you'll get into. So over the years, I, I trained more. When I was younger, I used to train a lot more, um, but I was never by any means a full-time like jujitsu guy. I've actually never competed. It just didn't really appeal to me. I mean, I think you can relate when you're starting off in jujitsu, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on you to compete. And I was thinking about it at one point, but I just, it didn't really interest me. And as I've gotten older, I'm very glad that I decided not to go down that road because I mean, if you want to do that full time, if that is something that has value in your life and it has meaning to you, then go for it. But the reality is there's a lot of like up down pressure in jujitsu for, to get students to start competing. And for people who are like working professionals and stuff, I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily always a good thing to force people to do something. They just don't have any interest. In. I mean, the mm -hmm. example I always give, cause people always say like, well, Steve, how can you never compete? How could you possibly train and get to black belt and be, you know, how could you do this and not experience the joys of competition? And I always say like, look, dude, I mean, do you like video games? Do you like playing Call of Duty? Cool. A lot of people do. Did you know that there are professional Call of Duty players out there who make millions of dollars, way more than anyone in the jujitsu world makes? Mm -hmm. That's cool. Does that mean yeah. that you want to drop everything and be a pro gamer? Probably not. Why? Because there are some things in life that people do just because they enjoy it, not because they want to devote their entire every waking second of life to. And for me, that's always been my relationship with jujitsu. I mean, in the, in the pre-COVID world, I would be lucky to train, you know, like two, three times a week. Now, just because of other priorities in life and with this pandemic going on, I'm, I'm not on the mats at all. But that's a very different philosophy from other people who have structured their whole life around Brazilian jujitsu. And uh, that's one of the interesting dynamics I have with my brother. Like when he started training, he very quickly decided that this was what he wanted to do with his life. So he quit his job uh, as a chef, went into jujitsu full-time, opened his gym. He competes basically professionally. He's got sponsors and everything. He's done an instructional with Stefan Kesting. Like this is mm -hmm. his life. Um, whereas for me, this is a hobby, a hobby that I very much enjoy and a hobby that I've, I've learned a lot from, but it is ultimately a hobby. And I, the, one of the reasons why we did this podcast is because we wanted to demonstrate to people that A, it is totally normal and acceptable and actually healthy to do jujitsu as a hobby and not have it be the dominating factor in your life. But additionally, the thing that we wanted to teach people is that even if it is a hobby for you and you can only commit a few hours a week maximum to training, even if that is your profile, you can still get really, really, really good but you got to be smart about it because you've got to maximize the use of your time. Hmm. Um, and interestingly, at the high levels, the top competitors, like some of the Danaher guys, they use very similar, if not the same training methods, because when you're at that level, you need every competitive edge you can get. And smart training methods turn out to be one of the best competitive advantages you can have. So it's interesting how, and, and Matt and I find this a lot, where his goals are much more lofty than mine when it comes to jiu-jitsu, but we use the same method to improve. And that's ultimately what BJJ Mental Models is all about. 
when I was even thinking of approaching BJJ much like yourself via, you know, watching the UFC, I saw it as a consumer to business type of relationship uh, without any of the context of all the stuff that comes with BJJ once you're there. So any of the weird things, the weird etiquettes and, and these type of things like don't ask a higher belt to roll with you, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, you, you're really not supposed weird, to win honestly. every time and all this stuff, but it's really prevalent as you know. So I'm just curious, the first day you walked in the door and, you know, the first day I walked in the door, the only research that I had done really is what's the address? How much does it cost? What time do yeah, I need yeah. to be there? Really, that's it. And then I walk in and people are doing these things up and down the mats that I don't know how to do and they throw you right into it. I don't know what direction I'm supposed to be going. If I'm rolling, I don't even know what rolling is at that that, that time really with a- It's more flopping you know, and flailing on your first right. day than it is rolling. A person with the opposite gender, am I supposed to, you know, how hard am I supposed to go? I don't know any of these things. And what I've realized is a lot of these I actually have never been to a place that really does an intake for someone who just mm -hmm. walks in day one, just gives you some sort of context. Why is that? Why, why don't these schools do this? It's a good question. Martial arts have always had this weird, like mystical culty thing going on. And like you mentioned, there's a lot of weird traditions like, oh, you don't ask a higher belt for the role, which is total mm -hmm. BS if you ask me. Um, and to be fair, as far as martial arts go, jujitsu is a lot better than most of the other martial mm -hmm. arts in that regard, but we still yes. have a lot of weird yes. traditions and things like some gyms won't let you ask a higher belt for a role, or in some cases you can't even like ask questions of the instructor and mm. even things like the bowing on and off of the matters. Mm -hmm. I've heard, I've heard some people talk about bowing to the dead guy on the wall. Like yeah, <laughs> I remember sure. when I started training, I started at a, at a Gracie Baja. And again, to you, the reason I started yeah. there was because I Googled Jiu-Jitsu Vancouver and they were the first result. That was the extent of my research. I didn't know mm -hmm. what a Gracie was. I didn't know what a Baja was. I go into this <laughs> exactly. gym and I'm asked to bow to these old dudes on the wall. I have no idea who they are. And right. then they basically throw me in there and I'm getting just manhandled and I have absolutely no clue what is happening. I mean, I don't even know if I'm getting choked out or not. I just know it's not comfortable. So they told, you know, they say tap out and so I did that, um, and it's not until I, you know, was lucky enough to get introduced to some kindly older blue and purple belts who pulled me aside and gave me that intake session that I realized, oh, mm. okay, now I, now I at least have some degree of context. Right. In terms right. of why that is, I would, I'd have to say that probably a lot of this stems from just the historical context of jujitsu, where previously they used to train harder rather than smarter. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. jujitsu ultimately like kind of was like, you know, tied into like the whole like street fight Valley Tudo thing right. where a lot of it was just ultimately being tough. And like the idea was like if you were a good black belt back in like the 80s or the 90s, the idea would be like you were like a legit badass who could handle himself in a real fight. Whereas that has kind of changed since then. And I, I would say that probably around like the 2000s, there was very much a big pivot. And using UFC as an example, you know, you used to have these guys who basically would just like go out there and they, they would be like willing to die in the cage. And even before mm -hmm. that, like they're training, they're training methods, like Ken Shamrock's training methods. They would basically be fighting in the gym. <laughs> like right. they weren't really like rolling. It was like legit fights. And that's part of the reason why they I probably have so many injuries and burned out so fast. And then around the 2000s, you know, being a Canadian, I got to say guys like GSP came up and they pioneered this more scientific, intelligent approach to training and the results immediately proved themselves. And now in jiu-jitsu, we see the same thing with like the Danaher Death Squad and uh, Rob Bernanke's team, guys mm. who are really arguing that concepts trump just grinding yourself into the ground almost every single time. Mm -hmm. uh, and even if you do want to grind yourself into the ground, you'll still be better off if you use concept-based thinking. But I think that the roots of jiu-jitsu where 
it really was this like hard nosed street fighter mentality originally. I think a lot of that kind of propagated up and we inherited a lot of these traditions. And so at many gyms, your first day is effectively a hazing. <laughs> you know, they, they don't tell you much about who it is. They just tell you what you must and must not do, like bowing to the mat, bowing to the dead guy on the wall. And then you, you go in there and you get your ass kicked. Um, right. That's really bizarre. If you think about it, like, can you imagine working at a business where you hire new employees and you onboard them like that? You basically just let them like fail miserably for the first few months and then just hope that they learn it over time. It's yeah. not productive or efficient at all. Um, I don't like it either because I frankly think in addition to being inefficient, it's a little bit culty, you know, <laughs> to kind of haze people when they come in. And I, I think that's part of the reason why a lot of these gyms get these like weird loyalty vibes. And, you mm. know, it's just because they, mm. they do use some of these kind of cult tactics that have been so historically intertwined mm -hmm. with the martial arts. Yeah, that was actually a great episode that you guys did on on that very topic. Yeah, I think that's a great illustration. Even if you're, think of it, if you're a customer walking into a Walmart, for instance, or something, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're doing this business transaction with them and you're being thrown into some weird things that you don't know about. Can it's you imagine baffling. walking into a Walmart and you go up to the checkout counter and they're like, we're not going to serve you because last week we found out that you went to a Target and there are in. <laughs> so you can't, you can't shop here anymore. Get out. And then they spent like the next three years disparaging you personally on Facebook. Like that's, yeah. that's basically what a lot of gyms do. And it's weird how even very rational, mature people get sucked yeah. into that vibe in jujitsu. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I've, I've had that happen to me where, I mean, I had never experienced really much like this in my life. And then I started jujitsu and before I know it, I'm pulled into this weird right. loyalty, culty thing. And I think a lot of that is just because, you know, we grew up watching these like martial arts stories of like these old ancient masters and all of this. And there's something about the mystique of martial arts that is enchanting. Mm. And it kind of, as a, as a grown-up, it kind of gets you to put your guard down, you know, and it, you, before you know it, you're establishing these weird relationships and get doing these weird things that you would never do in the rest of your life. Uh, so that's, that is one of the things about martial arts in general that I think we all need to be mindful of. And I think hmm. that one of the signs of progression in the martial arts and where we're going now is that we are much more open as a community than we used to be. Like mm -hmm. most gyms now, they don't have that crap anymore about how, oh, you can't train at any other gyms. Most gyms mm -hmm. now would happily mm -hmm. let you cross train. I mean, I, I don't <laughs> want to say everywhere, yeah, but right. the good gyms will, right? The good gyms will. Um, right. And that is one of the weird quirks about jujitsu, at least historically, is the whole like we have secret techniques and we don't yeah. ever train with people outside of the gym. Overall, I think that has stunted the growth of the art tremendously. Because if you look at like the explosion of YouTube techniques and stuff in the last 10 right. plus years, just the availability of information out there, it's hard to argue that the rate of improvement and the rate of innovation within jujitsu has just mm. grown like crazy. Whereas mm -hmm. it was probably much more stunted over the previous decades, but just that free sharing of information, I think has really made things better. Well, that, that is an, oh, another point that we spoke about in a different uh, podcast was uh, during the good times and the, before pre-COVID, and it was a lot of gravy, you know, happening. You could get away with a lot. And now it seems like you really have to take into account, I, I don't know, it seems like people, you could say, you have a decade of experience, you know, in Jiu-Jitsu Plus, and some of these people get really close to Jiu-Jitsu, you know, for that, for that long, you get so close to it that you kind of forget about day one. You know, what was it really mm -hmm. walking in like and with zero context because you have so much context, you have so many sc battle scars and you've heard it all, all the stupid questions and everything. So it's just interesting. I like that you guys even broached the topic on your show. Yeah, I, I love oh, the name you. of your show, Forever White Belt, because that I think very much reflects the mentality that people in jujitsu should have, which is that 
you need to maintain that beginner's mind and be always open to new ideas. Uh, what yeah. you don't want to do is think that you know everything and be so entrenched in your thinking and your way of doing things that you're not able to absorb new information, new strategies that may come up. Probably the most obvious example that people can think of in the last 10 or so years was the emergence of the leg lock game, right? For mm. a long time, leg locks mm. had this weird negative dogma around them. Yes, but, good point. I mean, you see what, what's happened now and that area of the game has evolved so much that it has completely turned jujitsu on its head. And mm. if you don't want to do that stuff and you want to funnel more towards like a more traditional game, that's fine. I mean, I, I tend to play a more traditional game, but at the bare minimum, you have to respect that stuff and learn how to defend it and get the train back on the course that you want it to go on. Mm -hmm. um, if you just kind of like hide in your gym with your buddies and you talk crap about leg locks and how they don't work, but you never go out there and train with leg lockers, you're just deluding yourself into thinking yeah. that you've got this, this magical technique, but in reality, there is a massive gaping hole in your game. And having that beginner's mind and being able to put your ego on the shelf and accept that you don't know everything, that is so key to continued growth within jiu-jitsu. And I think mm. that's a barrier that everyone has to get past because, you know, you start off at first in jiu-jitsu is a very humbling experience. And to your point, I, I don't think we onboard people well enough when they start off. They're kind of just thrown into the weeds, right? But mm. once you get that context over the years and you start to learn things, now you've got this other problem, which is, do you, need, do you know too much? Like, mm. have you learned so much that you now have false confidence in what you know, and that has closed your mind to mm. growing to the next level? And that is a, a challenge that I think everyone in their journey hits at some point, which is, they have to first acquire the knowledge and then they have to acquire the knowledge that they don't know nearly as much as they thought they did. And you have mm. to go back to having that white belt mindset and take that all the mm. way through the rest of your journey. I smell another uh, BJJ Mental Models episode coming up on the topic again. <laughs> yeah. we've, wanted, we've wanted to do that. We've talked about doing an episode just on like beginner's mind, which is a concept mm. that I believe originates from, from Zen, actually, just the idea mm. that you have to separate yourself from your ego and continually act as if you're a beginner. And in this case, learn, you know, learn as if you're a white belt. Approach every learning opportunity as if you're a white belt. You're going in and just immediately saying, oh, that would never work because I don't do that. You're denying yourself the opportunity to go to the next level. And where it gets, I think, particularly dangerous is when you're the most senior guy on the mat, it's hard, right? If you're, the, if you're a black belt, it's hard to take advice from brown belts, yeah. purple belts, even blue belts, sometimes even white belts. But the reality is sometimes really good insights come from those people, right? They, because they might be thinking laterally or thinking in a different way than you're used to. I mean, I can right. remember, for example, I used to play the lockdown a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I still do. I like the position a lot. It's not perfect. Yeah. It's got its weaknesses, but it has its place. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time I was rolling with a white belt and I put him in lockdown and he just stood up. Now, if you've ever talked to anyone who's like talked about like the lockdown strategy, one thing that you know is... If, if you're pulling a lockdown on someone and they stand up, you have to release the lockdown because you'll blow out your knees otherwise. Like it, it oh, actually wow. kind of inverts the position. Um, hmm. But the reality is most people, because they're so used to doing jujitsu, if you put them in lockdown, they'll just stay there and they'll just lay on top of you and try to pummel their leg because that's what you do if you're trained in jujitsu. But if you're a newbie white belt, you might just back out and stand up and try to run away. And you've wow. got to have the foresight as the guy doing it. If the guy tries to stand up, you have to let go of the position. Um, so that's one of the, the weird situations where you can get blinders to things that are unconventional just because people over the years, they get trained to do things one way. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it was Phil Davis, the UFC fighter. I think, I think he might be in Bellator. I don't even know where he's at now. But one of the things he said in an interview was that sometimes a white belt is the most dangerous person on the mat 
because mm. they do things that you don't expect and they do yeah. things the wrong way. Right. And I think that's very much true, not even just from a safety standpoint, but there's something to be said about being unorthodox because you can train yourself into training with orthodox people so much that you forget that sometimes untrained people do weird things. <laughs> and, hey, right, and it's right. good to train. Yeah. And it's good to train with white belts because you, you forget about that. I mean, I, I have a story, I think I've told it on the podcast where I was sparring with this, um, like very, very new, I think like first day white belt. He was a former bodybuilder, huge guy. Um, and I, I, he was in my guard and I put him in a cross choke and immediately he punched me in the face. And it was Whoa. like, just because, well, he, because he panicked, right? I mean, put yeah, himself sure. in, he was very sorry about it, but put himself in your perspective, in his shoes, right? He doesn't even know what like a cross choke is. All of yeah. a sudden he's going dizzy. He wasn't trying to punch me. He just started flailing around and his arm just clocked me in the face and busted my lip open. And I realized at that point, like the thing is you've got to expect those unexpected things. So if you're going to do a technique like that, you can't just leave your head unguarded because homie can punch you in the face. And in jujitsu, we forget about that because you're not supposed to. But if you were to do that to someone in the street and just cross choke them, you better find a way to protect your head somehow, right? And it's, sometimes it's that unorthodox stuff that you forget about because we train ourselves to like do things the right way. So Steve, one of the things I noticed too is you have this tech background, right? And I too yeah, yeah. have a similar background. I have a bit, I have a fond love for agile and the, and that type of thinking and Kaizen and constant, you know, improvements and iterating. And do you think there'd be a lot of um, upside for BJJ schools to take on this type of mindset? You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, it seems like um, your podcast has been doing it. And you guys are just, you guys are killing it. Yeah, yeah, very much. A lot of our framework is inspired by Agile, particularly by books like The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Um, mm. For those who don't know what we're talking about, Agile is a, it's like a management philosophy and a development philosophy that originated like way back in, I think, the 60s. It was Toyota who originally created this process. And the creation of that process was what allowed them to basically become one of the most dominant car manufacturing brands in the world and how they were mm. able to grow so quickly and create such a quality product. And in the software world, around the 90s and 2000s, a lot of these principles started getting pulled into, into software. And basically, the idea behind Agile, there's a whole bunch of defining principles. But in the context of jujitsu, really what, what we need to know about is this thing that uh, Eric Reese has called like the build, measure, learn loop. So basically, the idea is rather than coming up with a bunch of ideas and like never really testing them, what you want to do is do little experiments, almost like the scientific method and get feedback and find out if they work and do that as soon as possible. Like you want to try something and get feedback right away. And that's one mm -hmm. of the cool things about jujitsu is if you try something, you'll get feedback right away. <laughs> yeah. if, I, if I try some crazy new age choke on you, I'll know in two seconds if that was a good idea or not. Whereas in the real world, you may not ever get that kind of feedback. Like if I'm on the job and I'm being an asshole and that's preventing me from getting promoted and I'm not aware that that's happening, no one may ever tell me that that's the thing that's holding me back. Whereas right. in jujitsu, you get immediate feedback if something is going wrong. And I think that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why it's so powerful as a learning tool. Um, mm -hmm. So this loop where you like, you try something, you measure whether it worked and then you learn from what happened and then you apply that learning in the, into the next cycle and you just go into a continuous loop of doing these little tiny experiments. Um, I've heard people refer to jujitsu as the lab, like, you know, we're going to the lab to try something. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great analogy because that's the best way to learn here. You think of mm -hmm. it scientifically, you try little things and it either works or it doesn't and you evolve your learning. And the whole goal of jujitsu, if you want to get better, 
is to make that cycle as short and brief as possible and go through it as many times as possible. So hmm. by the time you get black to black belt, you should have gone through the cycle like thousands, maybe tens of thousands of times, just trying little things and making little tiny improvements every time. Steve, one of the things I want to talk about also is uh, Canada and mm -hmm. your region and island top team and casting. And why is all this stuff just bubbling up from this little place up there? It's just bizarre to me. Heck I mean, I know. <laughs> you know, there's it's such a concentration of interesting type of um, thought experiments coming out of there and content and product. Mm -hmm. And it's really fascinating. And I, I'm just not familiar with the region and even your, the way you guys speak about other academies and that it's cool that you guys train with each other and compete with each other or against each other too. It's a really interesting scene, it sounds like. Yeah, I don't quite know why Vancouver in particular has such an interesting like complexion when it comes to jujitsu. Um, I, mm. When I started training here, there were a handful of schools. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. the, you know, there was like a Gracie Baja and mm -hmm. there was, there's like an affiliation called West Coast Martial Arts, which is what I'm part of. And mm -hmm. uh, Marcus Soros, who's like, I think he's like Canada's top ranking black belt. He's got like tons of stripes. But anyway, he, he had his own school too. And mm -hmm. uh, anyway, there, that's kind of where it started. But over the years, it's ballooned up. There's tons of schools here now. And yeah, one of the things that really shocked me was that a lot of the people that I've learned from over the years, I didn't realize they were from Vancouver. I mean, Stefan Kesting, one of the probably most recognizable like online jujitsu instructors in the world, he's mm -hmm. not very far away from where I live. I was shocked to learn that he's from Vancouver. Of course, BJJ Mental Models is from Vancouver as well. Uh, Rob Bernacki and his team of guys uh, from Island Top Team, they do the BJJConcepts.net online academy. They're from Vancouver Island. And what's interesting is these people didn't all originate from the same branch of the tree. Um, like for example, mm. myself, I'm under Don Whitefield. Um, right. Matt is under Rob Bernacki. Rob Bernacki is under like Kautera and Kesting, I, I think is under Marcus Soros. Like it's not like there was one instructor who came to Canada and created all of this. Right. There's a right. whole bunch of little branches and then just they kind of intertwined over the years. Right. And I think a big part of that is just because for whatever reason in Vancouver, mm -hmm. we do very much have this culture of, community and cross training. It is not unusual for people to just drop in at someone else's gym just because like, you know, when I, in the pre COVID days, I haven't been training now, but when I was, I would go to the gym and there would always be some guy from some other gym, maybe someone that I did or didn't even know. Um, we, we had, would have like free community seminar programs where all of the different black belt instructors would do cameos at each other's schools and just come in mm. and do a free seminar. So that's like an initiative that we had ongoing. Uh, that kind of stuff is very common up here. And, and I can't actually really speak to exactly why that is. Um, I had to guess. I'd say probably it's because most of Vancouver's jujitsu community is homegrown. Um, you know, they're all mm. people who just kind of like, they're not people who like learned under like the traditional model and then, Im you know, immigrated into Canada. They're people who were here and then they just kind of picked up jujitsu, uh, but they, I guess, brought with it their own philosophy of, of openness. So in, in that sense, the, the knowledge has kind of come, but a lot of those old cultural hangups, I don't think ever really made it up here. So we don't have that fear of like enemy academies or sharing, you know, you don't share your secret techniques or your secret right. knowledge because everyone has... Yeah, because everyone is shared quite openly, I think a lot of interesting ideas have come out of the space. 
let's talk about the podcast. You kind of went over some of the origins, and I'm thinking, you know, BJ Mental Models, the, the beginnings, what you learn on the way, and versus where you guys are now, and where is it going now? One of the things I want to point out is you've got a you've got a voice made for radio, man. It's fantastic, you know. <laughs> so you are in the right medium, man, right now. Because I remember in the early days and the the early. BGJ Mental Models I was listening to, there'd be a booming Steve voice, and then there's a little teeny Matt voice. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah but yeah, you know, well, we, we, lear we learned how to do audio corrections since then. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, so I, I guess to kind of answer your question, going back, like I said, um, we just decided one day, you know, you know what, we're going to do this. We'd been kind of thinking right. about it, and we'd been thinking about doing a podcast on something, and we thought, well, our jujitsu story and the way that Matt and I both have very different paths and we can yeah. represent kind of the two different sides of yeah. the community. It's a fantastic odd couple techniques. kind of thing. It, it really is. Now at the beginning, when we started, we had no idea how to do this stuff. Like I thought, I, I foolishly assumed that if you wanted to do a podcast, mm -hmm. it's just a matter of like, Oh, well you just like buy a crappy mic and you plug it in and you just talk. Like we, we had no idea. <laughs> right. how, I, I had no idea how hard audio is. Like oh, I, God. I, I thought audio was going to be yeah. like as easy as when you pick up your phone and you just talk into it and record. Same. Yeah. I thought like, you know, you look at these influencers and stuff and all they do is they just pick up their, their camera and they talk into it. And I thought, well, clearly this can't be that complicated. Let me tell you, I have a whole new respect for like sound engineering. Video is a whole thing that I don't even understand. And I'm afraid to get into it because I'm sure it's even harder. Yeah. Um, but at the beginning, like we just had this like $40 blue snowball microphone. And what we would do is we would park it in the middle of the room and we'd all be sitting like four feet away from it because we didn't understand at the time that you have to be like right in front of the microphone to get good audio quality. Oh, wow. So that's why when you listen to the original episodes, like the audio quality is all gimped up. It's because we were standing so far away. And then over the years, I learned to how to do like post-processing. So I went back in and I tried to fix it as best I can and re-level it. But it's like at the end of the day, you can tell the quality, you can tell the quality difference as we learn. Cause around yeah. like episode six to 10, we yeah. figured out how to make it a bit better. And then yeah. by around episode 30, we had it being somewhat professional, but there are still little peaks and valleys. And you'll notice yeah. this every once in a while, you'll listen to them and be like, why is the audio quality on this one so much worse than usual? And it's usually <laughs> because we did an experiment or something came up that ah, impacted okay. our ability to perform it. Like, um, as an example, we, when we did, when we set up the podcast, eventually we realized like, okay, this one microphone approach isn't going to work. So I mm. was trying to figure out, and after extensive research, I figured out, okay, how do you get multiple mics in the room? Um, mm. And this became an important thing to learn because we were starting to get traction and have guests like Oliver Taza and Rob Bernacki on. And so we needed right. to find a way to have multiple mics. Um, and so what we wound up doing was we went through the whole process of like learning how to do like XLR integration and mixing and stuff. So We've got like a whole professional kit for, that was expensive, for like a mixture and yeah. all of the mics. And so, so the sound quality got really good and then COVID happened. And because of that, we can't get into the same freaking room anymore. Room with anybody, so, yeah. so around episode 60, you'll notice the audio quality dipped. And that's because we had to do some pretty drastic revision and relearn, okay, how do we achieve equivalent audio quality remotely to the point where it's going to sound to the listener like we're sitting next to each other, but we're actually very far apart. How do we do that? So we had uh, to relearn that. And as mm -hmm. of now, I think I've got it back up to, to where I wanted it to be. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's been a very much a journey of trying to learn the technology and production, which is something I have no background in. And at this point, I feel marginally fluent in it. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing has been 
taking the all of these ideas and having to document and catalog them. And the one thing that I did oh not God. expect, yeah, the one thing I did not expect was how much I myself would learn from doing that. Hmm. Um, when you're starting jujitsu, everything is new and novel, right? And so you're always, the struggle is how do I absorb all of this into my head and organize right. it? But once you get to kind of like black belt, you start, you've seen everything before, or at least most of it. And so the question then becomes, well, how do I really organize this knowledge and communicate it back to the next generation? And what I didn't expect was that by doing that, it would improve my knowledge of jujitsu as well. Like mm. we've got a database of all of these mental models we talk about on the show. It's up to about 102 right now of like yeah. full-fledged articles. Your database is all insane. Yeah. And what I didn't expect was that the process of creating that would clarify my thinking in a way that would make me actually better at jujitsu than just putting in more math time. Uh, mm. I, as I got, from the time we started doing that, if I had to clock it, I would say the biggest gains I've got from jujitsu have been having to build this database and learn how to organize those thoughts and communicate them back to our listeners. That's been a mm. bigger gain for us than just me showing up and training on the mats. So that, that was one of the things that really surprised me was that the process of teaching would make me a better student. Well, num number one, thank you for keeping your old episodes, which you're really embarrassed about, up. <laughs> well, I think, and I think I, the quality of the content is still good. It's just the audio yes. quality that is an embarrassment. But the material <laughs> itself, I think, is still good. It should also be known, too, that, that Steve and Matt have lost copious recordings before. So they probably had to re-record episodes over oh, yeah. and over because of flubs, which we all do in the podcasting world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the worst one for us was the first time we tried to go from doing direct recording to remote. I think, it's, I'll, I think I'll remember this for the rest of my life. It was our motivation episode. I think that was like number 78. We had to record that one eight times oh, because that was the dude. first time. It was the first time that we had attempted to do recording without being in the same place. So wow. we were trying to find the perfect audio recording software because I have really high standards for this. And I told Matt, like, yeah. I want this to sound like you and I are sitting right next to each other. That's, yeah. that's the goal. I want it to sound like a fluid and natural conversation. And wow. every tool that I found out there, it would either drop audio or it would like Skype out and get all glitchy or um, the audio quality would just be very low fidelity. And after trying like every single tool on the market, we finally got it to the point. And then we had to buy new technology too, because the XLR mics we were using in person are not suitable for remote recording. No. So it's like the, the investment in time and money. I, and I'm sure you can relate to this. I don't think regular people understand what goes into making a podcast. Like, <laughs> yeah. To do it yeah. right, it's not like I just like drink a beer and then pull out my phone or my mic and just yammer into it for like an hour. Like for right. every hour of audio we do, right. there's probably four or five hours of post-processing and editing yeah. and administration just to package it up get it the way that we want it, to send it to where it needs to go. And then the cost to doing it starts to add up too, especially yeah. as every time our fans ask for something new, like, hey, Steve, can you put it on YouTube? It's like, okay, there's, there's going to be an extra fee every month for that because I got to pay for new services and there's a lot of time. So these yeah. things add up and it balloons, but that is a success problem, right? It's the side effect of growing is that as your thing grows from just being this tiny little recording to being yeah. a full product that you offer, you have to take it up to the next level and it starts to become a bit of a, a time and a money suck that I think regular listeners don't understand. 
I was going to ask you about that because you, you seem, it seems to me like you might be the logistical guy because you seem much more analytical. It seems to me like you outline things and plan things. I mean, your show notes are, are incredible and the emails that come out and the recaps of the show themselves, it, it seems like you put a whole lot into it. One of the things I also wanted to talk to you about was the, the logo, the branding, the theme song. Mm -hmm. And then also touch about on some of the experiments or things that didn't work out. I know that you guys did a Facebook Live for maybe one or two times or something like that. Oh, this, this is actually one of my favorite things to talk about is like what worked and what didn't work. So, I mean, I had never launched an online business like this before and I'd never mm -hmm. podcasted. I'd never done any of this stuff. And of course, when you also when you're a hobbyist black belt, you don't have a competition record and there's always the risk that people will reject you if the content isn't good. Right. Luckily, we yeah. haven't had that problem. People have found the content to be very, very useful. So in terms of things that worked really well, um, we've tried a lot of the things over the year because we don't just want to grow our reach. We want to turn this into a sustainable engine. Like we want to have a community of people who are involved in this and they contribute back into it. Um, you know, we have a lot of people who support us on Patreon, which is actually the thing that allows us to keep this engine running. But even mm -hmm. beyond that, we get a lot of very great listener feedback. A lot of the things that have been added to our database are were done at the behest of listener suggestions. So it's been very much a virtuous two-way relationship. And we've tried a lot of things. And there were some things that worked really well, and there were some things that didn't. Um, mm -hmm. The first thing that worked really well was the podcast itself. We had a very unusual level of initial success. Um, most podcasts just die or go nowhere, or they never really grow. Mm -hmm. I don't know why exactly ours had the level of success so quickly that it did. If I had mm -hmm. to guess, I'd say it's because it is very specific. Um, there's this thing, you work in software, you've probably heard about this. There's like the difference between a, a blue ocean strategy and a red ocean strategy. <laughs> um, and where, the, where this terminology comes from is that like a red ocean is the ocean where all the sharks are out and they're eating all of the other fish. And that's why they're all, the water's red because there's, there's blood in the water, right? Mm -hmm. um, and a blue ocean is uncharted territory. There's nothing there. Mm -hmm. So if you want to compete and you want to create a competitive product, you want to do so in a blue ocean. You don't want to go and compete in a market that's already saturated where you're swimming uphill and there's a ton of bigger, better competitors that you've got to catch up with. Mm -hmm. So the question when you want to do anything unique and novel is how, what is my blue ocean? How do I create a niche that is totally untapped? And usually the way you do it, it's not by like inventing time travel or doing something crazy like that. It's by getting really specific because if you can target a very, very specific niche, then you eliminate everyone else who could compete with you because they're not in that space and you are then the first mover. So I think the reason we had so much success was because like there are really not that many products out there that are oriented in terms of mental models and systems thinking that mm -hmm. bring in like expertise from management and software engineering and executive leadership mm -hmm. that tie into jujitsu that do it in a podcast and do it in a way where we don't talk about techniques. I think that's the one thing that makes our mm -hmm. product really unique. I love when you guys talk about techniques, though, Steve. You know, I, 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 but I do think you're missing one, or maybe not missing, but just not bringing up. There is one thing, and maybe you're too nice of a guy to say it, but I think there is a qualitative factor to it that you, there is an it, an it factor. There just is. And I think you and your brother have this chemistry. And even I heard a recent podcast with you and Rory, and you guys had really fantastic chemistry as well. But there's something That's about... Weird, you and your brother yeah, too. I've never that, spoken to Rory really in my cool. life. It was that was yeah, just was so bizarre too. I'm like, it hey, was really, I, but it was really yeah, good. Uh, I don't, I don't know why exactly it worked out so well. Rory and I had actually we've never met in person. Uh, we first time we spoke was that recording that we did. Like uh, that, the only reason why was because he's a 
a friend of, of the show through Rob Bernacki and Matt. He's their training partner. I've never met him. He lives off on the island. And one day I just asked him, do you want to jump on the podcast and talk? And mm-hmm. I think maybe the reason why is because he's got a similar journey with us where he's got a two very successful online offerings. He's got his YouTube channel, RVVBJJ, yeah, and he fantastic. works with Rob Bernacki on their online academy. So mm-hmm. he's already got a similar set of experience. So for whatever reason, when he came on the, po- the podcast, it just w- really worked well. And of course, for Matt and I, I mean, we've been talking about this stuff together for our entire lives, right? So it's I, we already have a pretty good communication dynamic and we've got a lot of experience talking about jujitsu. So mm-hmm. a big part of the podcast was just putting a mic in front of and recording the conversations that we were already having. So mm-hmm. if it feels like it's kind of like rehearsed and polished, it's just because it, I guess it kind of is just from the fact mm-hmm. that over the years we've talked about this stuff so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of some other things that we tried that worked and didn't work, um, I think by the way, part of the reason the podcast worked well was just mm-hmm. luck of the draw in terms of SEO, search engine optimization, because yeah. we were trying yeah. to figure out a name for this thing and yeah. like self-explanatory. And the other thing I noticed is that, and I think we just got dumb lucky here, um, mm-hmm. everyone else who has a podcast puts like jujitsu in their name. We're the only yeah. ones who put BJJ. And yeah. I think as a result of that, we organically caught up on a lot of queries that people weren't finding. So that, that I think is how we got the initial traction in terms of the logo. I put a lot of time into, into how we wanted to do this. And what I wound up actually doing was I found a free service. Uh, well, I'm sorry, not a free service, a paid service, but I, I found a service called Logoster, uh, not Logoster, hmm. Loguster mm-hmm. with an A. I was just looking around because I was trying to figure out like, how are we going to design a logo? I want to have something, but I don't want to spend the amount of money that a, a designer would actually deserve to do this. Because I mean, like right. you work in the in industry, I work in the industry. Yeah. I'm not money. comfortable cheaping out on, yeah, I'm not going to cheap out on some designer. I'm going to make sure they get properly compensated, but I don't have the money. So, right. so, but I was looking at the service and basically what they do is like you kind of put in the, the, the name of what you want and some parameters around your, like what your, your show is about and what the words are and what kind of logo you're looking for. And I guess they've just got like a, I don't know if it's a database of like stuff that they've already bought into like a stock library or how they do that, but they barf out a whole ton of, of design schemas. Wow. And if there's one you like, you pay them and then you own it. And that's what we did. Um, just by luck, I found one for BJJ Mental Models that I really liked and that I thought spoke to exactly what we were looking to achieve. And I, I also have a bit of a design background. Like I'm not good at it, but I'm competent enough at it that I yeah. have an eye for what makes sense and what makes sense and doesn't. Thought, yeah. Okay, this actually makes sense. So we went with it. Um, in terms of the music, I have no musical background, but at some point around episode 30 or 40, Matt, Matt was up my ass for a theme song. He kept saying, Steve, we need a theme song. We need a theme song. And I was like, dude, do you know what royalties cost? Like, I don't want to go out of my way to set mm. this up and get music and all of this. It's a lot of work. So we thought, you know what, let's just ask the listeners if anyone wants to do it. And sure enough, we had a listener who was a musician and took us up on it. And he sent wow. us like a whole bunch of different options. Uh, I'll, I'll give him a shout out here. His, um, his, his call sign is Enterprise with a Z, Enterprise with a Z. Um, and he gave us a bunch. He's got like a Patreon and everything. You can commission him if you want what we've got. Uh, but cool. he put together a bunch of different options. And so his stuff is the stuff that we use on the show. In terms of other things that worked or didn't, I, I went heavy on Facebook ads when we started this. And Facebook ads was very hit and miss. Um, hmm. I think it definitely helped contribute to our growth. But the thing hmm. about Facebook ads is you can wind up spending a lot more time and money on that than you'll get value out of in return. Um, you know, hmm. by the end of it, we were spending like hundreds of dollars on Facebook ads every month. And we were, we were getting viewership out of it. But 
I'm not really sure if those listeners just kind of like came in and left or if they really stuck around. Uh, mm. The things for us that have really, really worked and actually surprised me in terms of how they worked, uh, how well they worked, number one is the newsletter. Um, we put together a BJJ mm. Mental Models newsletter through MailChimp. We send it out every week. I kind of just did that at first as a way, because everyone who does this stuff says, oh, you got to have a newsletter because that's how you build relationships with your listeners, right? Because the problem with the podcast is you don't know at all who's listening to you and who's talking to you. You have right. no way to get in touch with them. So if you have no relationship. Whereas with a newsletter, I can, you know, they fill in their email and I can send out this thing and I can say, if you have any questions, just hit the reply button. They'll reply mm -hmm. and we can chat. Um, and so then I, I actually, to some extent, have some understanding of, how the, of who these people are and we have a real two-way relationship. The newsletter at this point is growing to the point where it might overtake the podcast in terms of popularity. Wow. Wow. And that I did not expect because the newsletter was just kind of a happy accident. We just did it. So email is still powerful, huh? Yeah, um, at least for us, it was, you know, mm -hmm. all of these people building these like email newsletter databases. I thought this was some like hunky dory marketing crap, but everyone who knows this stuff said, oh, you got to have a newsletter. And you know what? Mia culpa, you guys were right. Um, it proved mm -hmm. to be very valuable. Other things we did that worked really well, uh, engagement on Reddit was a big, big deal for us. Uh, in mm -hmm. terms of the things we do that organically promote the podcast, being active on Reddit and establishing a reputation there probably has been one of the key factors to our growth. Um, wow. That's been a big thing in terms of what has helped us. Uh, another thing, and the thing that really swung the needle for us was Patreon. So in the past, yeah. we had, you know, we, we sell merch. And, right. but the thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is if you want to support a podcast, like merch is not the best way to do it, right? Because if you want to yeah. buy like a t-shirt, if we sell a t-shirt for 25 bucks, right? Yeah. We keep maybe $6 worth of that. It doesn't really help in any meaningful way. It's yeah. there because we know people like that stuff. Um, right. The ghee patches are a little bit better, but like make a few, ten, a few $10 sales here and there. It isn't enough to float the podcast. Like I, I think people don't understand to do a podcast like we do. It's probably if I'm just pulling out a number out of my head. It's probably like 60, maybe 70 hours of work per month to do. And it's probably hmm. about $200 per month in terms of ongoing maintenance fees to purchase all of the software that chains all of the stuff together. Yeah. Um, and I, we just can't sell enough in terms of merch to, to break even there. Nah. But the thing that really moved the needle for us was Patreon. Uh, we, we don't make enough on there by any stretch to do this right. as a full-time job. But right. we do make enough to cover the fees and incentivize us to do better. So right. that's been the that's game great. changer for us. Uh, and what we're trying to figure out now is how do we go beyond that and not just have this Patreon type relationship where people are basically making like donation pledges to us, but how do we offer this as like a real product? You know, we don't yeah. want people to feel like they're giving us money and they're not getting anything in return. We right. want them to feel like they're giving us this money and we're giving them a valuable product in return. Mm -hmm. So the thing that we're trying to do now is we're trying to take all of these little pieces we've made, like the podcast, mm -hmm. the newsletter, all of the social, the Reddit stuff, all of the stuff. How do we bundle this together like a course or a library right. or something that we can sell membership to? That's been a, a big thing that we're struggling with and we don't yet know the answer. And I, I well, would, I would have I thought just... that a Patreon would have been that I, because I did see in the email that you guys also mentioned a book. Yeah, that, that's where we do it right now on Patreon. If you join our Patreon, then you get access to all of that stuff. But the okay. problem is the Patreon doesn't make it easy. Like what, what I want is someone goes to a place, they, they sign up. And then they get like a, a login and they have access to everything. Right. Patreon gotcha. doesn't really work that way. Patreon gotcha. gives you like a subscription feed. And yeah. so the problem is if you sign up for my, my Patreon right now, mm -hmm. you'll see 
everything new that we make because it'll show up in your newsfeed. You'll get email notifications. But if you want to see all of the existing value ads that we've made over the past two years, like we've got a ton of awesome stuff in there. Patreon doesn't give you a place you can go to find it. If you want to find it, you've got to scroll through years of old like Patreon posts. It's not easy. So we're trying. And also the thing is, I don't think a lot of people understand when they go to Patreon, we are committing to give them a product. And that's, that's how we want to structure this is so that people know, like when you come in and you drop your Patreon pledge to us, this is not just money down the drain. You're buying access to something that's valuable. And I think the psychology of Patreon, people don't Mm -hmm. understand that that's like, that's not the relationship they have. So um, one other thing that we've done that has been incredibly successful is for our patrons, we set up a discord community, discord being like, it's kind of like, it's like Slack in a lot of ways, but it's more for like gamers and just for like casual chat. Um, I wasn't sure to what extent that was really going to take off, but it has been awesome. So oh, that's great. Uh, the people on, it's, it's been great. So the people on our Patreon, they get, you know, we've got like this chat. We're always going back and forth. They're sending us like their rolling footage and we're critiquing it. We're just doing like live Q and A's all the time. If wow. people have a problem or a question, they can point out, they can just talk there. If people want to talk to us about Final Fantasy VII, which is what we've been doing a lot for some <laughs> stupid reason, yeah. we do it there. Yeah. So, um, so we've got uh, a really great relationship there. And that, to me, has actually been one of the, the best tools we've had because it has allowed us to build a two-way relationship with our listeners in such a way that I know now, I really know what's going to help them because they tell me. So right. we, I, I go on there and I ask them, like, guys, what do you want to do next week on the show? What do you think would be good? Um, you know, what's working with the show? What's not? And, you know, and how can we reposition and improve this product to make it more valuable? And that's where a lot of our ideas come from now. So if you so it's almost like you're having app, retrospectives with your, uh, with your patrons. Basically, or your, they're hmm. basically like if there are customers and our listeners, we basically have like the equivalent of a scrum, <laughs> you know, just like on a daily yes. basis. I'm on my phone and I... I just say, what's up guys? And I, I ask them for feedback and they tell me what they're doing and what's working or not. And they'll shoot us some rolling footage that they, they took last night. And Matt and I will say, uh, you got to put your elbow in that place and not that place. And it's, I appears to have been a very positive relationship both ways. And so that's actually been one of a, the surprisingly most valuable things we do. I didn't realize when we launched that, I wasn't sure if anyone was going to sign up, uh, but I didn't realize how many people would be on board with that discord and how valuable they'd find it. So uh, Discord is just taking off. I, you're one of the many that I'm starting to hear that everyone is just using Discord now. Mm-hmm. The only downside to Discord is a lot of people don't use it. So to get them mm-hmm. on board, I've got to chase them and I've got to tell them to go and install this weird thing. I, right. I kind of wish that Patreon had Slack integration because everyone mm. uses Slack. It would mm. be a lot easier for me to do Slack just because people already have it. But well, I can't argue with the way the Discord has worked out. It's been very positive. And I, that's actually one of the surprising things I've learned is that when you're doing a podcast, really one of the big keys to growth mm-hmm. is to break that cycle, break, break that chain where it's only a one-way relationship. To really go to the next level, you've got to find a way to make it a two-way relationship, whether it be a newsletter or a discord or yeah. whatever you do. Being able to get that feedback back from your listeners is the thing that will create that organic growth engine that takes you to the next level. I don't know. I think with Discord, you guys are kind of ahead of the hockey puck. And oh, God, I'm using the hockey analogy as a, someone from the United <laughs> States who knows nothing about hockey. I think you guys are in the right place. Yeah. I mean, one of the benefits that I have is as a, as a technologist during the day, mm-hmm. I have all of these, this knowledge of how to set these things up and where the trends are going. So I can bring that in and we can be a first mover in a lot of spaces where even the big fish, like they haven't even thought about setting this up. Right. So 
that's kind of the direction that we've moved in. And it's allowed me to take a lot of the things that I know work in the workplace and apply them to the podcast. How you and your brother work with each other, right? So as I mentioned before, how you, it seems to me like you're the analytical one, you're the one in, in uh, the technical space, you're aware of this kind of stuff, and your brother's much, he's the gym operator, he was a former chef, and he's your brother. This working together, whose strengths are where and who complements who where in this operation? The way that Matt and I often describe this is that my strength is running the show and his strength is jujitsu. I spend, my, I basically do all of the admin, like at most of the stuff that we you see on our wow. website, a lot of it I, I did the first pass on, um, but right. then Matt comes and refines it because he knows a lot more about jujitsu than I do just over mm -hmm. the years and doing this professionally. So I'll right. take the ideas and I'll take the first crack at it and he'll hit it with a hammer and just make it look good uh, in terms of how we set up all of the new stuff. I mean, obviously all of the tech stuff is, is me. So the actual editing and recording and distribution of the podcast, Matt can barely turn on a computer. So that's my thing. <laughs> um, what okay. Matt does that's though is Matt spends a lot more time studying jujitsu. So mm -hmm. when he goes off onto these tangents about like what's working in the competitive space and where weaknesses are in the game and what the new trends are and what, you know, like this is stuff I have no clue about. I don't follow the competitive jujitsu scene at all. I personally don't really find it particularly interesting. So mm -hmm. I rely on him to go out and study all of that stuff and aggregate that information and then bring that back to me. Because what he can do then is he can explain it to me, we'll riff on it together and we'll figure out how it integrates with the framework. And maybe there's a hole in the framework that this new idea fills and we go, oh, okay, well, we need to add that to, the, to incorporate it. I mean, so an example a while ago, John Danaher posted this big, long, great essay on myopia in jiu-jitsu, which is basically mm -hmm. the idea of like, I have tunnel blinders or tunnel vision, I have blinders on, and that is preventing me from looking at other opportunities beyond what I, I see right in front of me. And as you know, we all have this problem where you get it into your head, like, I really want to armbar this guy. And you're trying to insist on the armbar to the exclusion of other things that are happening, which might actually be better ideas for you. Uh, and we realized, well, that, that is actually a mental model, not just for life, but for business, for everything. It's like a very mm -hmm. common pattern that the human brain gets itself into. And learning to become aware that that is happening to you and change course is a huge advantage, both in really jujitsu and in life. So we started talking about that. And of course, Matt was the one who discovered all of this because he's the one who monitors the jujitsu scene. So I then kind of took that and reintegrated that back into our worldview here. And then he right. sort of hits it with a hammer and then I publish it up on the website and then we talk about it on the podcast. So it's kind of like a two-way relationship where I'm bringing in knowledge that I have working in terms of like technology, systems, operations, management, leadership. And Matt's bringing in all of this knowledge that he has from jujitsu, competition, training, teaching, coaching, and we try to merge that together. And if we can find commonality between the two, then we know we found a mental model. And his small business entrepreneur experience too, as well. Well, that, that's the thing too, right? Like Matt runs a pretty successful jujitsu gym here in Vancouver. Um, in fact, he was, he was lucky and he's talked about it on the podcast. He ran it smart. And as a result, due to COVID, he hasn't been, I think, as devastated as a lot of other gyms simply because he didn't over leverage himself financially. And he, he tried to run it smart and run it based not so much on a reliance on sales and marketing, but based on a reliance on quality and organic growth. So his gym on guard in our area is uh, one of the better known gyms, especially if you want to learn like the leg lock game. His school is really the specialty there. So uh, whereas I don't run a gym, right? My, my interest in business is kind of more on the tech side and on the like the social side. 
So Matt has that direct firsthand experience of what's going to happen when you run a gym and where the pitfalls are going to be. And I think that's a something that almost everyone who sticks with jujitsu for the long term is going to think about. So the fact that Matt's got that experience allows him to speak from an educated standpoint with people about like what's likely to work for them and what's not. BJJ under COVID, and that's one of the things I want to talk to you about. What does it currently look like to you? And what do you think it will look like in the future? And and touching on that, I'd like to talk about also the state of jujitsu, its current state, conceptual BJJ and the future of BJJ to you. First and foremost, when it comes to COVID, I mean, I would say that I I am not an epidemiologist. I'm not a scientist, although I do play one on Facebook. Sometimes. You follow <laughs> yes. me on Facebook. I am consistently trying to preach for a science-based approach in terms of COVID, and I'm consistently getting yelled at from people who don't want to hear about it, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. So, I mean, I like to think of myself first and foremost as a pragmatist and a rationalist. And when it comes to things like COVID, the reality is that there's a lot that we don't know. Uh, And I think when people see like changing science and changing answers and changing advice, they think to themselves, oh, scientists don't know what they're talking about. That is not what is happening. What is happening is that the science is emerging and we're constantly getting new information and we have to work with the parameters of that limitations right now. The fact that science is revising their thinking is a good thing. That is one of the hallmarks of science is that they have a beginner's mind and they abandon thinking when they have evidence that they're going in the wrong direction. That's why. Steve, so so you're suggesting we inspect and adapt? Basically, yes, I'm (laughs) suggesting that. I'm suggesting that we, but the thing I found is a lot of people, they have a narrative in their head that they want to hear or that they believe in, and they're very receptive to information that supports that Mm. narrative. Hmm. And they're very resistant to information that doesn't. And I've been attacked very personally on a lot of matters because people don't want to hear that COVID is a real thing and a legitimate threat. And it is. Scientifically speaking, it is. I mean, we can have a conversation about what the right approach is and how far we need to lock down and, and how far we don't. We can have a very rational, objective discussion about that. But you can't objectively argue that COVID is not a real threat. Like, at this point in time, COVID has surpassed in the United States alone, like it surpassed the deaths from World War I. There's a very good chance it's going to surpass the deaths from World War II. I mean, we completely restructured global policy because of 3,000 people dying in the year 2001. At one point, that many people in the U.S. were dying per day because of COVID. And we're still not taking this seriously. And that is not just a U.S. thing. There are many, many people in Canada who don't as well. And I think a lot of that is just, there's like a degree of proximity bias, right? If you haven't seen and experienced this firsthand, it's easy to hand wave away that this thing is not a real threat. It's easy to say, oh, well, you know, it can't possibly be real. I, I haven't seen anyone die of this personally. But if you look at the news, you'll see Same. there's a lot of stories of people who say, I didn't think this was serious until my mom died of this or until my wife died of this. And that is the boat we're going to get into. And the thing I have found very disappointing in the jujitsu community is that a lot of people don't take this seriously. They think it's a hoax. They think that, or they think it's overblown. They think it's somehow admirable to just keep training right through a pandemic. They think that it's a sign of weakness to take this seriously. They think it's a sign of fear if you take this seriously. That kind of rhetoric, I think, is, is harmful. Because very clearly, this thing is, is a serious, serious threat. Now, what exactly you should, we could, you should do about it, that's a much more complicated question. I think that really the challenge is that none of us are experts in the matter. So for me to come on here and say, we should all do this or we should all do that, like, who, who, who the heck am I, really? Like, mm-hmm. I barely know jujitsu, let alone science. So the last <laughs> thing I should be doing is giving science advice. But what I, should, I would say is we should listen to the best minds that we have 
who have a hell of a better understanding of this stuff than we do. We should listen to their guidance. We should understand they're not perfect. And we should be willing to adapt our thinking when new information comes up. And the thing is, in reality, like the situation is very different depending on where you live. Like up here in Canada, in BC, we were world leaders in the COVID response up until a few weeks ago. And now we've kind of lost control of it. And the cases are going back up again. And they're kind of like at an all-time high. And I know there was a very similar curve in the States, although more pronounced, where the curve went up. There's a big spike initially, and then the curve flattened, and then it spiked up again. And I think a lot of that is just due to lack of willpower. And people think either thinking this thing is being done or getting COVID fatigue or just wanting to will it out of existence. But the virus doesn't care about your politics. It doesn't care about your opinions, your beliefs. It doesn't care about whether you think this is a hoax. It exists in a completely objective fashion. And if we're going to respond to that, we need to be equally objective in our response. And so I, w- I would say that whatever you believe about this thing, try to collect the best information you possibly can. And that doesn't just mean go on YouTube and find something. And it doesn't mean if one scientist says it, then it's all good to go. Like consider the reputation of the people that you're getting your information from and consider what other people say about that, rep- about that source. Like if you find a doctor who agrees, who says like, oh, COVID's a hoax, but then you immediately find like, a thousand more qualified doctors who say that dude's wrong. Consider the quality of the information that you're taking in. And the reality is with jujitsu, unfortunately, our hobby is probably one of the worst activities to do (laughs) if you're worried about the spread of COVID. How we rationalize and reconcile that, I don't know. And I'm not really comfortable giving advice on this, um, but I've Mm -hmm. seen a lot of people try different things, right? And I, I think, honestly, the biggest question that you have to ask is, where are you? And how far, how bad is the outbreak where you are? And what does your health authority say? And are they really a good source for information? Like, can you, can you validate that that health authority is really on top of things? Because honestly, some health authorities are not that great. So mm-hmm. you've got to try and find the best quality information and make a call based on that. But the worst thing you want to do anywhere is just reopen your gym and pretend that it doesn't exist. Like people who brag about like, I've been training through the whole pandemic. Like, that's not something to brag about. That's embarrassing. You're making our community look bad. I mean, you're running the risk of drawing some ire from regulators, which would be completely understandable, right? I mean, if they start tracing big outbreaks back to BJJ gyms that were flaunting the rules, like this is going to be bad for all of us. So please, the bare minimum, be responsible and be critical in your thinking. And so, rant, I'm done. Conceptual jujitsu all of a sudden just stormed out of Canada, I'll say. And it was this whole other thing. And for me, it was, an, it was like a light bulb going off. For me, it's really difficult to learn when I just watch someone doing a technique, right? So I have to do it over and over and over and fail until I can even start. So when you get these concepts that you can think about instead of hold hand, hold leg, or, or whatever, right? When you start thinking about frames, alignment, uh, base, and these type of things, it's helpful to have for myself a hybrid of the two, right? Obviously, which worked for me. Having someone talk to me about concepts for anything over five minutes and I'm, I'm, I'm down in Candyland, you know, in my mind mm-hmm, here. Yeah. So your thoughts on where is conceptual jujitsu going? Is it uh, jujitsu itself? Where is it going? How do you see it? Good, the good current question. state of things. Well, I think it's very clear. It's kind of irrefutable that concept-based thinking is on the rise. And, mm-hmm. you know, working in, in software and in management, you, you know, you are obviously also familiar with this, that, you know, a long time ago, we moved past just like banging our head against the keyboard and we have systems now for how we think. 
And in jujitsu, that is starting to catch up. And I think especially with the success of the Danaher crew, they were them and like Ryan Hall were probably some of the ones who really started pioneering this model. Rob Bernacki, who is quite famous for it, has said that like uh, Ryan Hall was very much his inspiration. He Mm -hmm. saw that dude's way of thinking and really changed the way that he thinks. Um, For me, one of the big things that kind of got me thinking about this was learning more about mental models and how they work in the workplace and then learning and mapping that back to the game-changing moments I had in jiu-jitsu. Because I think I've talked about this on the podcast. Like we, we've all been to the gym where, you know, there's three, I'm sure you've been to this. I'm sure most of our listeners have. You go to the gym, there's a warm-up, there's three techniques, you drill them, you roll for 10 minutes, you're done. That's the class. Like everyone in the world does that. Hmm. Is that a good way to teach? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know about you, but I would say that for every one of those, for every like 100 or 200 techniques that I am taught during that structure, maybe one of them will stick. Like it's not an efficient way of teaching. I think everyone hmm. would agree with that. Hmm. And one of the breakthroughs for, for concept-based thinking and something Rob Bernanke has said is that like, look, it's not a problem with you. The fact that you cannot remember every single one of these excruciating details is not a problem with you. It is a problem with the way we teach and the way that we learn. And we have to change that thinking. You don't need to remember every single thing that is shown on the mat. In fact, that's probably not even a good thing because you're filling your head with crap. I would say, and based on the conversations that I've I've had with Matt, and we talked about this on one of the podcast episodes, at a broad level, I would classify teaching styles into kind of three different categories in terms of jujitsu. There is what I would call like toughness-based teaching. And that is like the old like jungle fighting, right? Where basically you go in there and you just, you and your buddies just murder each other and you learn to be tough. Maybe your technique is not the most refined, but like you are in like peak condition, you have like a killer mindset and you can get pretty far if that's what you've got. What a lot of gyms do is they do technique-based or series-based teaching where they use that model where you come in and it's like, here's three techniques, memorize them, boom, done. That is better than nothing. I mean, at least you're being shown something, but it's not efficient, right? It's just bombarding someone with information and hoping that it will stick. And then there is concepts-based thinking, which is really the thing that Ryan Hall, Danaher, Bernacki, and ourselves are, are trying to pioneer here. And that is the idea that you, you separate yourself out from the reads and you look at the big picture. You look at the principles and the patterns that tie everything together. Because if you understand those, they will be a foundation for you. And all of the little details that you see, you can kind of hang off of that foundation and change them as you need them. Um, it's a much more efficient way to, to learn. But the reality is, and as you said, to be truly effective, you need to take the best from all of these systems. If you were to just do like a toughness-based approach, you would be like one of those old like MMA guys from like the 90s <laughs> where you're, you know, you're maybe like a, a brutal thug and you can beat the hell out of people, but ultimately you're not very refined. Similarly, like technique-based teaching, at the end of the day, you have to tie your ideas into some sort of material concept, right? If I just sit down and talk about jujitsu with you and that's all you ever do is talk about (laughs) jujitsu and you never do it, you won't actually learn. So you do need that. But similarly, the concept level is the the level on top that helps you think about it and tie those ideas together. And I think that to really accelerate your learning, to make good decisions, you need that concept-based approach. And I think that especially given like Danaher's team and the success that they're having is really showing how important that concept-based approach is. In terms of like where I would like to see jujitsu go, I would like to see concepts take more of a, a place in the classroom. What I wouldn't want is a situation mm. where, as we all know, you roll into the class and it's like, okay, guys, here's armbar variation A, here's armbar variation B, here's armbar variation C, we're done for the day. Like mm-hmm. you should be able to tie those back to a theme. 
You should be able to tie those back to and present those in terms of principles. So like the way I like to teach is rather than picking three techniques out of my grab bag and saying, here's what we're doing today. I'll say, here's the idea I want everyone to have today. And maybe that idea is something like the importance of having a good elbow knee connection. Here is that core idea. And then when I show techniques, they will just be examples of that idea. You know, I'll pick some techniques, but these will ultimately all just be examples of the main concept that I want to show. So instead of showing like a series of arm bar escapes and stuff, what I will do is I'll say like, look, today, here's the idea I want you to learn. And then I'll show three different moves that maybe illustrate that idea in action. And then at the end of the class, I'll tie that back to the idea. And I'll say like, look, guys, these were some examples that we did today. Now, if I want, if I can get you to take one thing away from this class, it's this idea. That's what really matters. The examples mm-hmm. and the techniques, they're just details. They're just mm-hmm. specific illustrations of this idea. Take them or leave them, right? And I think that's a much more effective approach if you want to teach from a concept base. So I want to be respectful of your time here and sort of wind things down with a odd question, but one that I love asking people. Go for it. Uh, can you tell me how you learned to tie your gi belt? So, <laughs> and then can you tell me about the first time you attempted it in a live class? Okay. So, well, I mean, I guess the first time I attempted it in a live class was probably day one, but I didn't really have the wherewithal to be embarrassed about it until much, much later. I probably did not quite learn how to tie it properly until black belt. And that's an embarrassing admission. I used to have the problem that everyone has where I just couldn't keep the stupid belt on. And around, like I was tying it the quote unquote right way, but there's a few different ways that you can tie it. Um, But there's like this super awesome way. I think if if you look up like Kesting's got a video on like the best way to tie your belt. And basically it's like this fancy, fancy knot. And if you tie it that way, it's much, much less likely to come undone. Hmm. A brown belt, I learned that. I learned to tie it that way. And then it it wasn't until black belt that I learned I was tying my belt with the stripe on the wrong side. The stripe Uh, is supposed to be on, the bar is supposed to be on the left side. Left side. Left side. Yeah, it's, I think it's some tradition that goes back to like samurai pulling their sword out with the right hand from their left side. But anyway, the bar is supposed to be on the left side. Some people get downright religious about that and will chew you out. Like I know people who have gone to gyms with the belt tied on the wrong side and they got yelled at. Yeah, but other people, most people probably don't care. But every once in a while, you will find some old school guy who will be like, you have your belt tied on the wrong side. It's, it's hilarious because our gym, the, I trained at a gym called Ascension Martial Arts uh, here yeah. in Port Coquitlam. And our gym, their logo has a black belt on it. And in the logo, the bar is on the wrong side. And so I'm always telling our instructor, <laughs> That's I'm not going to wear your stupid logo until you fix that. And it drives me crazy. <laughs> All right, Steve. Well, where can we get more information about yourself, BJJ Mental Models, and anything that you'd like to promote? The main thing for us to talk about in terms of what we do is BJJ Mental Models. Um, Pretty easy podcast to find. You can just search for it and you can find it on any podcatcher or on Spotify or whatever. Um, If you can't find it or you want more info, you can go to our website, bjjmentalmodels.com. On the website, we've got, as I mentioned earlier, we have like a full database of all of the mental models that we talk about on the show organized by concept and by area. There's like 102 of them. Um, They're a good primer and a reference if you're working with us on the podcast. Uh, You've also, if you wanted to get onto the mailing list we talked about, you'd go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join. And of course, if you want to be part of this like two-way community we're talking about and get access to the book and all of the other value adds, it's our Patreon where you go. That's really the thing that moves the needle for us and is the most important thing you can do to help us. It's patreon.com slash bjjmentalmodels. 
All right. Well, thanks so much, everyone. I'm Adolfo Frondo. You can catch me at at show on Twitter. And uh, give us a thumbs up. You know, do the whole subscribe, hit the bell, and, and all the nice rating things. So thanks again. Thank you, Steve, for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.